So tonight I would like to talk a little bit more about contemplative understanding, just uh, continuing uh, what we were saying the other night. As we all remember very well, uh, there was this passage, this quote from Thich Nhat Khan in which uh, the uh, work of mindfulness is expressed in a very deep and very poetic way, the work of mindfulness, the work we are doing here, and the work we intend to continue doing uh, outside of here. And here we uh, nourish both the mindfulness and the intention to do mindfulness work. When, when we hear that passage, that quote, we are very much inspired. And then the, uh, the issue is to put it into practice, to apply it. So I thought maybe trying to explore a little bit closely this work of mindfulness uh, at different levels might be helpful a little bit. So we can try and start from uh, a relatively easy uh, way of working with mindfulness. That is with a simple activity like washing dishes. You know, we have this activity and uh, we observe as closely as we can, this activity which is in progress. Suppose we had a a very difficult meeting before washing our dishes. Um, The task of mindfulness is more difficult. Uh, Our mind uh, will tend to go away and uh, it will take us a certain effort to try to be in the present moment. If we are going through a difficult time in our life, if we are having a very intense anxiety or depression, in a sense it is as though we are all the time under the effect of a bad meeting. And uh, (laughs) therefore, the work is difficult. And this indicates very clearly the need for an exercise in calm abiding as, as a prerequisite, the need for an orderly life. It is the opposite of, of uh, our life being a mess the need for enjoying sila, enjoying morality, which has nothing to do with moralism, which is bitter, which is a form of aversion, the need of um, having some generosity in one's life. All this helps us having some sort of uh, basic relaxation 
the practice of calm abiding and a, a good order in our life. Helps us having some relaxation, some happiness, some calmness. And this way the work of mindfulness can take place uh, and we can develop an interest in it, which is harder for it to happen if our mind is under much stress and pressure. So we started out, we started a few evenings ago talking about samadhi, calm abiding, and now we just are remembering the connection between calm abiding and, and mindfulness. If we can do this uh, relatively simple job of being mindful when we are doing a simple activity, a manual activity, <coughs> there is a further step in terms of relaxation. If we manage to do this job of being mindfulness of our washing the dishes in a somewhat impersonal way, then it's as though there is a gentler energy in it. In other words, if it's not I am washing myself while I am washing the dishes, but if it's rather a flow of sensations infused with mindfulness, infused with awareness, this is a different field of energy altogether. If we manage to move a little bit towards this direction because if it's very much I-mind oriented then uh, the energy in it is not so gentle there is this uh, push and this uh, constant danger of splitting constant danger of duality all the time just sliding into being two and being dualistic in being uh, uh, separated, divided. But if we manage this other kind of energy, as I said, it's gentler. There are sensations and there is consciousness of those sensations. This is an altogether different field of energy. And I understand that this is also the beginning of what's called anatta, what's called non-self. We, uh, if we don't have experience or practice enough, we can get suspicious with this word, uh, non-self, uh, emptiness. But really, what, it, what happens is that um, the more ego gets reduced, the more the, more the ego uh, goes back into the background, so into abeyance, and the more consciousness, full consciousness, can come to the foreground. In the, in the, in the Forest Dhamma tradition in Thailand, uh, they use the expression, the one who knows. The more we free ourselves of the illusion of an ego, and the more the one who knows, the Buddha within, comes to the, to the, to the foreground. So we can get uh, suspicious because we might maybe equate non-self with non-consciousness 
and uh, this is not, doesn't seem to be the case. And when ego gets out of the way, um, there is more spontaneity and more simplicity in life. Uh, while I was in Thailand last winter, I was uh, studying with a teacher in that tradition for Zama, Ajahn Panyavado. And one day we were talking about anatta and non-self, and he chose uh, uh, an interesting example. He said, in my opinion, when anatta is something along these lines, suppose there is an emergency. Sometimes what, happen, what happens is that without thinking, not even a little bit, we do exactly what it needs to be done at exactly the, the right time. So there was no uh, planning, no thinking, no scheming. There was much less ego, in other words. And, and there was this uh, very beautiful and very useful uh, union of body, mind, and action. So maybe looking at, at, at this example, we, we could have uh, some difficulty in, in thinking in terms of no self, fine. But that the direction it points to is this one, this, this direction of unity and spontaneity. After exploring a little bit this level, we can think of uh, somehow different level in, 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 in this sense. We just, uh, let's think of just a, a normal day of our life. But during one of our days, there are charged moments and there are just peaceful moments. Sometimes uh, we are quiet inside, there is serenity, and sometimes something comes up and there is um, um, no stillness, there is some disturbance in the mind. Let's call uh, this uh, situation a charged moment. Maybe, for instance, we are working or reading or writing, and then all of a sudden a thought comes uh, oh no, tomorrow I have to see so-and-so. Little waves, little small waves. Uh, and there is some charge to the wave. The, the, the previous state of balance is gone. There is now a, a, a slight imbalance because of this, of this wave. Now, in a sense, this is uh, more difficult than being with a simple manual activity because some, em some emotion is involved and, and therefore there is more power if some emotion is involved. In this sense, it's a step up. It's a, it's a, it's a, a little higher level. The training in mindfulness, as much as possible, is having mindfulness co-arise with the charge of moment as much as we can, 
our work should, should um, go into that direction, that um, uh, as often as possible, uh, mindfulness springs up together with the charge of the moment. Right? Sometimes it's possible, sometimes it's not. But that is the direction. Now, if this happens and we're dealing with small things like uh, a slight aversion and a, a, a slight reluctancy to, do, to doing something, the uh, effect of mindfulness is an effect of neutralizing that charge. Uh, the oh-no syndrome you know, springs up, mindfulness is like this, and we quiet down. We are not going to get caught. We are not, we are not going to add uh, words and, and concepts and, and imagination to this little wave. It just subsides. Sati, mindfulness, as we saw already, works with wisdom, with understanding, with panya. And panya helps mindfulness, and mindfulness helps panya. In this case, in the past, by dint of observing, just pure observation of this kind of reaction, we've seen the negative quality of it. We, we've seen that uh, it's not going to help us saying, oh no. Actually, it's going to uh, weaken something in us. So we've seen, and, and to some extent we've understood the toxic quality of that um, aversive uh, reaction to this sudden memory about who we are going to see. So there is already some panic, some understanding, and, and sati, mindfulness, can latch on to that understanding, and it's very easy, or let's say easier and easier, to let go, because once again, uh, we see that uh, there is a toxic quality, there is a toxic flavor in that apparently innocent oh no. And so we, we, we let go of it. Or suppose we have a, we, we keep working, and now the balance is back, and then at one point we feel some fatigue. But fatigue comes with some irritation because we would like not to be tired. And so we get irritated because we are tired. Again, if some mindfulness charged with some panya co-arises with this, we understand that adding aversion to our fatigue just uh, worsens the situation. And so you just uh, drop the, the, the reactivity towards tiredness. One can be tired without being irritated. One can be tired and happy. It's possible. <laughs> but then, let's go one level up. Instead of charged moments, charged seconds, we can have something like an ongoing charged moment we can have some more substantial discomfort to deal with. Now, if we 
have been developing have, have been developing samadhi, and if we've been using mindfulness both in simple activities, in manual activities, and in charged moments during the day, then dealing with uh, substantial discomfort is more possible, uh, advisable. And we can remember that working with discomfort, physical or mental, is really the core of spiritual work. It's the core of inner work. It's the, the cutting edge. Uh, but of course, it's also the most difficult part. And uh, it seems that even great saints sometimes uh, were, were not uh, you know, available and totally ready to go to going into it. It is said that uh, St. Teresa of Avila once was in a, uh, some sort of a difficult, painful uh, circumstance. And she heard a voice saying, this is the way the Lord treats his friends. <laughs> at, at which she snapped back, no wonder he's got so few. (laughs) 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 And yet, again, if we've uh, done some experience gradually with working with discomfort, we already, we've begun to know and to understand that uh, there is in store there no less than a comfort, actually the highest comfort, because through the working with discomfort, the comfort of understanding, of letting go, of compassion comes. And because of this basic understanding, even if it's just an initial understanding, we can develop a first basic prerequisite, which is being interested in doing the work, the working with discomfort. This way, an energy is is available. The energy of interest is available. And we need a lot of energy to work with discomfort. I would say that another prerequisite is um, an understanding of something Larry was talking about last night, and uh, that is the ratio between objective suffering and subjective suffering, which Larry hinted at with the name of torment. Uh, That is, the pain for a sickness or for a loss, and then there is the suffering that we inflict on ourselves as a reaction to objective suffering, or out of nothing. This is dukkha, this kind of suffering. 
I think if we had some very intelligent way of, of weighing, of weighing uh, these two types of suffering, we would have um, one, on the one side, objective suffering, and maybe ten, maybe one hundred, on the side of, of sub subjective suffering. This is why it's so important uh, to work with Dukkha. Because we've been uh, accumulating you know, with, with uh, a sort of negative momentum uh, a great deal of subjective suffering. If, if we don't look at the roots of it, it'd be, it be going on and on. And then, when we proceed to do the work with discomfort, I think one very crucial thing to be kept in mind is the first step. Uh, if we don't make, don't do this first step, um, it's very likely that we have a bad start and, and we don't go too far uh, having a bad start. The first step is literally taking a vow, taking a very firm determination that we are going to allow our discomfort to last the time it needs. Which practically means we are not going to feed the wish for it to go away. It's a very natural wish, it's a very natural desire, but we are not going to feed this desire, as we usually do. Because we have some understanding already that this feeding of that wish is a big part of the suffering itself. We cannot avoid having that wish, that desire, but feeding it is a totally different business. So, literally taking a vow that we are not going to do that, that we are not going to uh, fuel that desire is a very basic start point and it makes the whole work easier and more available, more possible. If we forget about this first step and then that constant fueling of that wish will be heavily interfering in, in the work of the mindfulness. Of mindfulness. And after that, uh, we station ourselves right in the middle of discomfort. And we find out that this is an excellent way of protecting ourselves, which is something which we would never expect it. Actually, if we are not meditators, if we are not practitioners, and we hear something along these lines, we don't believe it. We think it's the craziest thing in the world. And yet, it functions exactly like this. We've seen that ignoring the discomfort is not the way of protecting ourselves. We've seen that uh, allowing the discomfort to away to, 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 to uh, um, overcome us, obviously it's not a way of protecting ourselves. But we see 
more and more that just putting ourselves in the middle of it is a way of taking care of ourselves, is the best way of taking care of ourselves. Of course, we are not doing it in any defiant way, in any hero-like way, but rather we are doing it in a friendly way. And we stay there. And we uh, latch onto the bread to, to help this uh, stable position in the middle of a, um, of a maybe small or great uh, tempest um, storm. And we keep staying there. And we keep staying there. Sometimes the uh, discomfort, the storm ends, and we feel like more or less we manage it to stay there, to stay with the discomfort, uh, but we don't feel that we have accomplished much. Now that is again the judging mind, because we've done something which is recondition, reconditioning, so to speak, ourselves. Because we've done something uh, different from what we usually do, something which implies less fear, which implies more confidence. And it's not unusual that we come out of the tunnel feeling cleaner, feeling lighter, without having uh, uh, accumulated, added so many reactions and so much stuff. We simply stayed at the center <coughs> again and again, using the discomfort as our meditation object. As much as possible without words, or when words come, seeing the difference between the words and the bare discomfort, often discomfort, even if it's mental discomfort, as a physical location, maybe chest, maybe stomach. That's another anchor to just be there without going away. We don't go away. We are there for ourselves. We are taking care of ourselves. We are not leaving ourselves alone in the storm, in the difficult time. Now, that's very new. We don't do it to ourselves. Maybe we do, we do it for other people, but we don't do it to ourselves. Just staying with ourselves. While, while it, 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 it's tough, while it's rough. That's a big difference. Sometimes something more can happen, an insight. While we're doing this work on the, of, 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 of <coughs> working with the discomfort, accepting the discomfort, investigating the discomfort. And what can happen is that we realize, much to our surprise, that we are attached to our aversion. If, say, if you are angry, we can find that we are attached to our anger. And so we, we are surprised because we find out that we are even 
more irrational beings than what we thought we are. Now, this is crucial, and at this point, the investigation has to become subtler because we have to shift focus from anger, aversion, to the attachment to it. We've found something very precious because basically we are at the roots of ego. It's right there. It's as though we had caught our ego building its walls and digging its foundations. You know, attachment, foundations, aversion, the wall. It's very important understanding, a very important thing to see, even if we don't like it. Essential, essential knowledge. How can we rely on attachment? Who knows how many other uh, things uh, attachment gets attached to unconsciously? So it's, it's basic knowledge, it's basic understanding. Or maybe, <clears throat> say we are going through some discouragement because of something, and we, we keep being there, we keep being there, we don't run away, and we find that, again, in a very destructive and toxic way, the moment we need more support and more help from ourselves, we are taking it away from ourselves. Say something, did someone did something to us, and uh, this is why we are feeling discouraged. But we are losing faith, we are losing uh, trust. And we are drowning in this feeling. And we see, if we bring close mindfulness to this process, that, again, we are leaving ourselves alone. Just the moment that we had this uh, accident, just the moment we need all our support, our friendship, our compassion, we are doing the reverse. We are telling ourselves, you are worthless. and this maybe is just uh, another level, another possibility to work with investigation and with, with mindfulness. If we feel that we are full of energy <coughs> and with uh, good stability, we can try to probe more into seeing how much we build our world, how much we concoct. Last night, Larry was talking about labels, mental labels, sannyas, and thought formations, sankara. Sankara is a very interesting word because it means putting together. And as you might have noticed these days, our mind puts together quite a lot. The process is called abhisankara, just, just building and fashioning and shaping all sorts of things, and then reacting to what we've done, to what, to what we've made, like 
uh, that example of someone uh, making a, a very accurate drawing of a tiger and then get, getting scared. <laughs> uh, we, do it, we do it most of the time. <laughs> so suppose suppose uh, there is one example, one uh, situation which uh, keeps coming up in, in teaching meditation in, in uh, meditation classes in a big city, and this example is traffic. Uh, and it seems that the city of Rome, I don't mean Rome, Florida, I mean Rome, Rome, <laughs> it's a very fertile uh, field of practice in this, in this respect. <laughs> so traffic is, is uh, in this respect, is a good thing, uh, because it uh, helps us see if, if, we, if we are in, in, in the right place or energy, and attitude uh, to see the way our mind works. Um, if we if we practice in a, some energetic and sustained way, and you know sometimes uh, we we succeed, sometimes we don't. Uh, or, or it's good not to be perfectionist. Uh, we see that. We select, in this situation, traffic, we select a few impressions and our reaction to those impressions. And upon this, we build up something until there is this big ball pulsating in our mind, which is traffic. But if we keep being in the moment, just which with as much as we can, with each sensation, we dissolve traffic. Then we get distracted again, and we recreate traffic. It's back here. Then we go into <coughs> practicing again, and traffic dissolves. We maybe <coughs> we are, there is heat. So there is heat. Maybe our head are um, aching or contracted because we've been driving for a long time. So there is contraction in the legs. Maybe the air is not good air, not good air. Maybe there is some nice sensation, some nice impression. And now that we are practicing, we are not going to miss it. While, whereas if we are busy building up traffic, we will miss it for sure. Maybe we are driving in a very beautiful alley with, alley with beautiful trees, and we are able to enjoy it. It's, it's a different universe. It's a, 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 nice, a nice road with nice trees, period. Then maybe the desire to be back home uh, comes. After a number of traffic jams, we are late, and we would like to be back home. So now it's the desire to be back home. What are we going to do with this desire? We can just let it be, or we can start from there and do a huge thing about you know this damn city and da 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 da. da. <laughs> we let that desire free. We don't we don't we don't make we don't make into our uh, stepping stone to build something else. It's just a desire. Just appears and then at one point goes away. 
So the more we practice, the more closely we practice, and the more we dissolve traffic, we empty ourselves of all those reactions and constructs which make traffic. And we are back into some refreshing simplicity. Being with the moment without making abhisankara, putting together, fashioning, you know, from one label uh, to a construction, from this construction to this label, on and on. Filling, you know, filling our mind instead of just uh, happily emptying it. Making it spacious instead of crammed. I remember another, another Saint Therese, this is Saint Therese of Lisieux, once said, it is incredible how much suffering, meaning objective suffering, one can take if one is in the moment, if one is right in each moment, because we are not building up. And so our, our power of, of allowing, of acceptance, is much higher because we are in simplicity. We don't add subjective suffering, and so we can take. We have more space, and we can take objective suffering. Now, how could all this relate to interpersonal relationships? I would like to say a couple of things about this. One thing is that the more we work this way, and the better our relationships, our relationships go. Suppose there is a dislike. Again, step number one, understanding that dislike is suffering. We might have not thought about this. We have a dislike, an ongoing dislike, maybe for a person. And maybe we never thought that just having a dislike is suffering. And so we are feeling that suffering. We are doing that to ourselves. Number two, it's good that we work when the person is not in front of us, when we uh, when the person is in our mind, and we see how much we build around that dislike, how much we select that dislike out of the whole of that person, and upon that dislike, we build one sankara after the other, again and again. So working when the person is not there, when, when the field is relatively less charged, and then, of course, working when the person is in front of us. How much we are selecting uh, things to react to in order to confirm our dislike. Again, a very irrational thing to do. So we miss a big part of the other person. 
and we have more suffering. But if we do this work, the same as we were saying about the traffic, we can empty out a little bit ourselves. We can have less, uh, less, we can have more space inside. And you see, sometimes what can happen is that we are facing that person, we are just in front of that person, and we don't know anymore who that person is. And this comes like a grace. It's not that we feel it as something disorienting. It's a relief. We don't know for a few moments who that person is. And at the same time, there is something in us which melts. Like, in a sense, we don't know who we are simultaneously. Uh, like a label melts somewhere. Oh, those are precious moments. We see what is possible. We see that we, we are not uh, condemned to that conception, to that idea, that obsession about that person and about ourselves. Because the person is the one we dislike and we are the ones who dislike that person. It's a bond. It's a, it's, it's a loss of freedom. When we start letting go, there is more freedom for ourselves, and we give more freedom to that person in our mind and maybe in, 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 in actual uh, existence. And all this can come from mindfulness and, let's say, peaceful coexistence with that discomfort, with that dislike. We just go to that dislike, and as much as we can, we abide with that dislike. We peacefully coexist with that dislike. And it seems to be the only way to get a, to a point where we peacefully coexist with that person. But prior to that, we had to coexist with the dislike, instead of acting it out, ignoring it, um, uh, uh, feeding and puffing it. No, this is very basic understanding, very basic knowledge, very basic dharma. At the same time, once we get lighter by virtue of this work in interpersonal situations, then following a few basic uh, suggestions by the Buddha and by uh, all the great uh, spiritual traditions becomes much easier. Otherwise, the danger is that uh, this suggestions just uh, stay a little bit like wishful thinking or, or rhetoric. Somewhere, I don't remember where, the Buddha talks about antidotes to um, aversion for other people. And um, very systematically, as, as usual, uh, <laughs> the Buddha talks of uh, four possibilities. He says, um, maybe you have um, aversion for a few flaws, a few shortcomings in a person, and at the same time um, you see uh, positive sides of this person. And the suggestion constantly is to tune in the positive side of the person and to just set aside what we think is the negative side of the person. So the first 
instance is when the positive side is very clearly visible. So the Buddha says it's like a monk is walking down the road and he sees a piece of cloth and part of this piece of cloth is still usable and part is not. So he uh, takes away the part which is not usable and keeps the good part and uh, is going to use it for, uh, for his robe, for making a, a new robe out of, of, of this cloth. So you, you make a very constructive use of the uh, positive qualities of the other person and you don't look at the negative qualities. But then he says maybe uh, the, the um, positive qualities are not um, that visible. And now the... <laughs> wait, wait. And now the, the, the similar, the metaphor is like uh, you get to a pond and uh, you want to drink some water, but the water is covered with leaves and scum and moss. Now what you do, you just remove whatever is over the surface of the water, and once you've done that, you, you drink the water. You scoop and you drink the water. So <coughs> it's... It, I mean, I find a very accurate and very interesting metaphor because uh, it shows um, it shows the gentleness and the commitment. You know, you, you just gently remove what is a hindrance to having uh, a good and nourishing contact with that person, and then you 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 uh, go go ahead, and you have this nourishing contact with the nourishing part of that person. But then. It's possible that we see uh, even less good qualities uh, in that person. And now the metaphor is like this. It is as though, a monk, uh, you see an ox footprint, and now the water is in the ox footprint, just a small place with a little bit of water. You cannot go like this, scooping, because if you do, you're going to mix it up, the water, okay? So the only thing you can do is just kneel, kneel down and just suck the water. <laughs> Again, it, it, it's amazing the, the, the clarity and the precision uh, of, of, the, of the metaphor. Uh, it shows the, 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 you know, the person goes through the trouble of kneeling down of uh, using this extreme gentleness, uh, not doing anything which can um, hurt or trigger the other person's reactivity, and, and just establishes this contact. So, when we get here, we think, what's next? <laughs> <laughs> and the Buddha, uh, you know, very systematically and very precisely, <laughs> says, maybe amongst you don't see any positive quality <laughs> in the other person. If this is the case, uh, it's as though someone is very sick, is very ill, and this person is far from the village uh, from which he started his journey, and is far from the next village, and there are no medicines, and there is no doctor, wouldn't you feel compassion for such a person? 
So again, uh, um, the knowledge from the text, from the tradition, is very important for our inspiration, which is an integral part of the inner work. But at the same time, we need the practice to make uh, the inspiration more real and to work with the inspiration. If we've been taking care of our discomforts and of our reactivity through the constant emptying process, through the the getting uh, spaciousness thanks to mindfulness and wisdom, uh, the putting into practice of this suggestion becomes more feasible. It's a difficult practice. It's a difficult practice but it's absolutely worth it because the spaciousness and and the freedom and the warmth which can come uh, is the highest one. Again, the same same author whom we quoted before, St. Teresa of Lisieux, said once there is nothing sweeter than thinking good things about other people. And we might as well say that there is nothing more bitter than thinking bad things about other people. But we need spaciousness to realize this quality of bitterness. If if we are addicted, as we usually are, we don't see the bitterness and we don't see the sweetness. So uh, may the Dharma help us to see both. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.